is uh, Nate Brady. I'm one of the elders here at Crossroads. If you don't know me, I'm filling in for Brother Rob this morning. He's been traveling the world and spent some time in Spain with his son who's there with the IMB, and just pray that his time has been restful and relaxing. Um, last week, we had the privilege of hearing from Dr. Scott, and I heard from several of you after the service great distress as to how short the sermon was last Sunday. So no worries, I got you. I'm going to take the time he didn't use last week and just roll it into mine, and we're going to get out of here about 12.30. So, um, I'm excited. I'm excited for our message this morning. This morning, we're going to be looking at Psalm 90, and um, <clears throat> if you would, stand with me, and I want to I read the entirety of Psalm 90 before we get started. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to, to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are as but yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood, they are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning, in the morning it flourishes and is renewed, in the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of, of our hands. God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that this morning as we as we turn to Psalms 90 and we, we think on who you are and, and on who we are, I thank you that, that we have the ability that you have given us your word in written form that we could come and we could read it and study it and memorize it and meditate upon it. And I pray that this morning your Holy Spirit would apply it to our hearts and to our lives. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So, um, when I chose Psalm 90, if I'm, if I'm being honest, there was, there was no uh, great epiphany of why I chose Psalm 90. I texted Rob and I was like, hey, I think I'm going to do Psalm 91. And he responded, he said, I, I think I already did that. So I was like, oh man, crud. So I just said, I'll do Psalm 90 then, right? So I just said, whatever, I'll just jump back one and I'll do Psalm 90. And at the moment, I didn't realize what the psalm was about, really. I just said, well, I'll just do that one. It's as good as any other psalm. We'll see what happens. And then I started looking at it, and I said, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. This is probably one of the oldest psalms in the Bible, if not the oldest. Because when I think of psalms, and you probably as well, I think of David writing psalms. I think of um, some of his musicians and songwriters in his employ for, for temple worship and for in the, in the tabernacle uh, writing songs. I don't think of Moses writing a song, but yet here's a psalm that was written by Moses, which started me to thinking to go, okay, I need to understand the context of this song. So if it's written by Moses, what's happening in the life of Moses? And we can't really tie this psalm to any one point in Moses' life, say, oh, he wrote it at this point or at this point. Um, he probably wrote it at some point after leading the people of Israel out of Egypt, but we can't really get more specific than that, which led me to kind of delve a little bit into Moses, because this is just me being honest again. If I'm honest, my, my picture of Moses was about as deep as Charlton Heston's portrayal of Moses in the Ten Commandments, okay? And which, by the way, if you have not seen Charlton Heston's The Ten Commandments, please go watch it. It's like the greatest movie ever. 
Um, we, we've got Jason Witzelson's working for us, and, and uh, he's straight out of high school. He has no clue all of these awesome things that exist, like Charlton Heston. No clue who Charlton Heston was. So we're taking it upon ourselves to educate him of the finer things in life. Um, but, but my portrayal, my kind of the picture that I had in mind of Moses was, was Charlton Heston, right? And I hadn't really put a whole lot of thought or time or study into Moses' life, what was happening in his life. What, what are the things that had formed him? And so this morning, before we dig into the text, I want to dig into Moses just a little bit, okay? So the first thing I want us to, to think about is that Moses was the ultimate man without a country, Moses was born in a time when Pharaoh commanded all the male children, all the maybe male babies born to be thrown into the Nile, okay? And so his mother hid him until she couldn't keep him quiet. Then she put him in a basket, floated him down the river. I'm pretty sure she had a, a master plan there and knew exactly when Pharaoh's daughter came down to the water and had given instructions to Miriam. And so Pharaoh's daughter finds Moses floating in the reeds in this basket and says, oh, what an adorable baby. I want to take it home. Can I keep it, right? And she's Pharaoh's daughter. So yes, of course she can keep it. And then Miriam comes out and says, oh, hey, would you like for me to find you someone to, to nurse the baby for you? Oh, that would be wonderful. So she goes and gets the baby's own mother, and then her, Moses' mother gets her baby back, and she gets to nurse him until he's weaned, which is probably about three years old. And so at three years old, Moses is taken from his family. He's taken from his mother, his father, his sister. He's taken from them and taken into the house of, of Pharaoh. It's a, it's a different culture, probably a different language. It's a, it's a different family. He has been torn from his family, taken to a house that is not his own. And so here he is, and he's in Pharaoh's house. And then something happens at about age 40. And at age 40, he kills an Egyptian slave driver who's beating a Hebrew, right? And it's almost as if Moses is kind of taking it on himself to go, I'm going to free my people, right? I'm going to deliver them from the suffering that they're under. And he kills the Egyptian slave driver who's beating a Hebrew. Well, the next day, he goes and he finds some Hebrews that are arguing amongst themselves, and he says, hey, what do you, why are you arguing? You don't need to stop arguing, right? And they basically tell him the equivalent of, hey, who died and made you boss, right? And say, so are you going to kill us too, like you killed the Egyptian slave driver? Moses says, uh-oh, people know. And so he hightails it out of Egypt. Pharaoh's looking for him, right, because he's a murderer. And so he flees to the land of Midian. So he's in the, he's in the wilderness, and once again, he leaves his culture, his family, everything he's ever known, and he leaves it, and he goes to live in a strange place. And we don't even see him living in a city, in a community. We see him in the field with sheep. And then God calls him back to Egypt and says, Moses, I want you to come back, and I want you to free my people. And so he comes back. Pharaoh's household rejects him, right? And then not only that, the people of Israel grumble and complain against him and say, we don't want you here. You're not helping. You're making things worse for us. And so Moses, again, is, is rejected. He's cast out. But he leads them out of, out of Egypt, and he takes them into the wilderness. And what happens in the wilderness? They grumble, and they complain, and they say, well, Moses, why have you brought us out here? It was better before when we were in Egypt. We had melons to eat. We had all this good stuff to eat. Again, Moses is rejected. He's kicked out. He is unwanted. And even to the point when his own sister Miriam grumbles and complains against him and goes, hey, why do you have all the perks of leadership? You need to share some of this with me, right? I'm family. You let me in. Give me, a, give me a good position here. Why do you get to be in charge? So Moses, like I said, he's the ultimate man without a country. He has no home. He has no place. So that's the first thing I want us to understand about Moses. The second thing is Moses is highly educated. At that point in time, <clears throat> excuse me, at that point in time, the Egyptians were the most advanced culture on the planet. So for 40 years, Moses is getting education upon education in science and physics and philosophy and religion. Everything you can think of, the man has, like, his PhDs have PhDs, basically, right? So Moses is highly, highly educated. And we, we take that, okay, and we take that in mind, and I want us to think about this in the context of a man who is isolated in every way possible, who has been robbed of having a home, robbed of having a people, robbed of having a family. And I want us to look at the first verse of Psalms 90. The man without a home says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place. 
When we think of, we think of a dwelling place, we think of, of, of a home, of, of a shelter. Um, Psalm 71.3 puts it, puts it another way. It says, be to me a rock of refuge to which I may continually come. You have given the command to save me for you are my rock and my fortress. So Moses is saying, God, you are my dwelling place. I have no dwelling place. I have no one that wants me. I have no family that wants me. I am unwanted. I am unappreciated. I'm under tremendous stress. But God, you are my dwelling place. You are my refuge. You are my rock to which I can continually come. We were talking about this this morning in, in Sunday school. You know, and I have a home, and my home is, is at 167 Timberline Trail North, Elizabethtown, Kentucky, 42701, right? And I go to work, and every day I come home to my dwelling place. But ultimately, that place is not my home. It's a picture of my home. It's an idea of my home, but it's not a home. And when we lived in Guatemala, we, we moved, we rented, and, and we moved houses multiple times, and so we moved back to the States. I, I was wanting to just rent for a while or live in my parents' basement, and, and we build a house. And my wife Erin goes, no, no, we're buying a house. I want some roots. I want to put down some roots. We need some, some consistency here. I want a house, and I want it now, right? And because she had that desire to go, I want a home. I want a place that is mine, that is my dwelling place. And you know, in reality, that's a very good desire. It is a desire that God has placed in each and every one of us to have a home, but it's not meant to be the end home. It's meant to be a picture of something else. Another thing we talked about this morning is the, um, going back to the, the home you were raised in, right? Um, and I can still go back to the home that I'm ra- I was raised in. My, my sister and her husband bought the house, and it, it's still cool to go back. But my grandparents... Their farms have sold, and, and I can't go back there anymore. Someone else lives there. Someone else is making memories there. And, and it's, a, it's a wonderful picture of even though we have homes here on this earth, they're not permanent. They're not lasting, and they're not meant to. And Moses says, God, I have no home. I have no place where I can continually come to, but God, you are my home. You are my dwelling place. You are the place to which I continually return You know, you think, about, you think about Moses' job of leading the people of Israel out of Egypt, and if you think taking a road trip across the country with some kids is bad, try taking about 12, 13 million people through the wilderness, right? And all they do is grumble and complain and tell you that you're not doing it, you're not doing it right, you're not doing good enough, that you've ruined their lives, right? And that's Moses' job. And he didn't get vacation time, right? I don't think that was worked into the deal when God said, Moses, I want you to go to Egypt and, and free my people. I'm going to give you this much time off and this many sick days. It was, no, you're on the clock, Moses, all the time, 24-7. It's you. He didn't get to take a vacation. There wasn't a sabbatical. He couldn't say, okay, Joshua, I'm getting really tired, so uh, why don't you take over for about three months? I'm going to go hang out at the beach somewhere or by an oasis in the desert, hang in a hammock, drink some coconut water, and I'll come back when I'm rested. No, he was, he was on call all the time with the people who grumbled and complained and were not appreciative. And if you can imagine the tremendous amount of exhaustion and stress that Moses was under leading the people of Israel out, and there's no downtime, but he says, God, you are our dwelling place. And the other thing I want us to see here this morning in verse one is he says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place. He doesn't say, Lord, you have been my dwelling place. He said, you have been our dwelling place. And ultimately, and I wish we had more time to, to dig into to this part, but we're just going to have to kind of mention it and move on. The only people who get to have God for their dwelling place are the ones who have put placed their faith and their trust in him who have been covered by the blood of the Lamb. If you have not placed your faith in Christ, you are not welcome into Christ. You are not welcome into the dwelling place. And so when Moses says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place, he's talking about himself and everyone else who would believe you and me. Just as much as God was Moses' dwelling place, he's also our dwelling place as well. And that happens through the blood of Christ. We go on to verse 2. Verse 2, Moses says, Before the mountains were brought forth, 
or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Now Moses is using this imagery of mountains for, for, to convey an idea of, of unchangeableness. I remember when I was a kid, almost every year we would go to the Smoky Mountains, and um, my favorite thing to do in the Smoky Mountains was go to Abrams Falls because the water was cold and I could get in and swim and it was awesome. But the other thing we would do, we'd go to Klingman's Dome. And I remember when I was really little, we went to Klingman's Dome and there were these beautiful evergreen trees everywhere, all over the mountain. And there was, now there's a nice concrete path, you know, that goes up, but then it was just a hiking trail. And we'd hike to the top, and there's beautiful trees everywhere. And I remember a number of years later, we went back and all the trees were just dying and it was just dead trees all over the mountain. But you know what? Klingman's Dome years ago, and then with the trees healthy, with the trees dead, and now with the trees coming back, is still 6,643 feet tall. It hasn't changed. What's on the mountain has changed, but the mountain has not changed. And, and that idea of the unchangeability of, of mountains, Moses says, God, he says, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Moses says, God, as much as mountains do not change, you don't change even more. The mountains have not always been there. Um, and I love this verse in, in Job 15, 7. Now, Job's been doing some low-grade complaining to God, right? And going, hey, this is unjust. I've suffered all these things. I, hey, I've been a good servant. Like, why is all this stuff happening? And God responds to, to Job and says, all right, Job, dress yourself for action like a man, and I'm going to ask you some questions, right? Basically, he says, Job, put your big boy pants on. I'm, I'm fitting to ask you some questions, okay? And so he asked him this, and he says, Job 15, verse 7, he says, are you the first man who was born? Or were you brought forth before the hills? You know what he's saying to Job? He's going, Job, you were not the first man that was ever born. And you weren't brought forth before the hills. But guess what, Job? Before the hills were, I was. This is fantastic news for us. Because what Moses is doing, he's saying, God is our dwelling place. And he is eternal and he is unchanging. And not only has he been our dwelling place, and is he, been our, is he now our dwelling place, but he will always be our dwelling place. We can count on it. It will not change the fact that God is our dwelling place, that he is our home. He is the place to which we can continually return. And then let's go on down. Let's go to verse three. And we're going to kind of work our way through verse three through 11 here, kind of as, as one section. And Moses is going to take a turn because what he's been doing, he's been talking about God and his eternality and his unchangeability and, and all these things that God is, that he is our dwelling place and he is our home. And now he's going to take a turn and he's going to talk about man. And I, I will also want us to think about this as well as we keep this in mind. Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. So when, when David writes a psalm, David is writing the things that he has learned about God from reading what Moses wrote and from experiencing God in his own life. When Moses writes a psalm, he's writing because he wrote the Old Testament under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine <laughs> the inspiration of the Holy Spirit writing down the story of Adam and Eve and the fall and the Tower of Babel and the flood <clears throat> and Sodom and Gomorrah and Adam or, and uh, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Esau and Ishmael, all of these things. And Moses, has, he wrote them all. And so then Moses comes back and he says, verse 3, you return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. Another, other translations or other transcripts in uh, the original Hebrew say, return, O children of Adam, right? And so I think Moses is referring right here to Genesis 3.19 when God curses the earth and he says, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust and to dust you shall return. Moses says, Moses says, guys, we are under a curse. We live under a curse. You and I live under a curse. And I think we forget that. We forget that we are living under a curse. We live in the United States of America where we've got, we've got the intelligence, we've got the education, and we've got the money to, to have a good life, to make as, as much of the discomfort go away as we can, or at least we think we do. 
but we live under a curse. We live in a world that has been, has been cursed. We'll get into that a little bit more in a minute. Let's go on down, verse 4. Verse 4 says, For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. So Moses is doing this thing where he starts out big and he works his way down. And he says, God, a thousand years to you are like yesterday, which is like a really short amount of time. Then he makes it even shorter, and he says, or as a watch in the night. A watch in the night was three Three hours or four hours, depending on the time of the year and how long darkness lasted. So it says, God, a thousand years in your sight are as but yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You know, you and I, we, we live our life and we think, man, I've got a, I've got a lot of time ahead of me. I, I, I'm 37, you know, and I don't think about the end of my life a whole lot. I think about my plans for the future and what I would like to see happen and where I'd like to go and what I would like to do. I don't think about the fact that my life is just, it's just a vapor. Listen to verse 5. He says, you sweep them away as with a flood. Again, this is, this is Moses who wrote Genesis, right? And so he's talking about a flood. You sweep them away as with a flood. He's talking about man. They are like a dream. Is that me? Boom. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. He says, your life is like a, it's like a dream. It's so short and it's so fast that it's like, you wake up and go, was that real? Was it there? It's just gone. He says, it's like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. Listen to verse 7. And he says, for we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath, we are dismayed. There is this, this imagery here of the world that we live in being under a curse, and it's as if the, the, the burning anger and wrath of God is being poured out on this world that we live in and upon us, and we live under the curse of that day in and day out. You know, and, and, and like I said, we've, we've kind of got this, as Americans, we kind of think we've got this thing figured out, right? It's the world, really. We have global economies, you know? If we have a drought out west and the corn crops and the wheat crops fail, you and I won't ever see it in the grocery store because, well, we'll just import it from another country. We'll just, we have this economy that kind of helps to just balance out the ups and downs of the weather and climate change and all of these differences and wars that are happening. And even within our own country, we have government regulation that kind of helps take the, the shock out of our, our economy to where things stay pretty, pretty regular. We have healthcare, right? We have the weather is not really an issue too much anymore because we have houses we can go into for shelter. We have air conditioning and heat. We get in our car, it's air conditioned, it's heat. Some of them even have heated steering wheel and chilled seats. You know, the air comes out of the seat. Like we've done so much to go, we can eliminate the effects of the curse. But you know what we've done in order to afford all of those things? We work ourselves to death all the time. And we run, 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 because we've got to make more money and more money and more money to buy these things that make our life easier. We, and we go, oh, I'm overcoming the curse. No, we're not. The curse is still there. It's just, I don't sweat when I'm in my car now, but instead I work my fingers to the bone. I don't have, I don't have cool seats in my truck, just so you know. But I, I work myself to the bone. We work ourselves to the bone to have all these creature comforts to go, we can overcome the curse. No, we can't. Moses, Moses says, God, we are as the grass that fades in the heat of the day. And it, it, it weighs on us. And it bears down upon us. And then in verse 8, he says, You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. Moses says, you know our sin, God. And this is important because it... We could fall into the trap of thinking that God is our dwelling place if we've got it together. God is my refuge and he is my rock and he is my strong tower as long as I'm not sinning. As long as I'm going to church, as long as I'm tithing, as long as I'm filling the blank, whatever it is. We go, if I do that, I, I'm, welcome in, I'm welcome into the dwelling place. 
I'm welcome into his refuge. And Moses goes, no, that's not it. Moses says, where are we at? Verse 8, he says, you have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. Moses says, he knows it all. He knows your sin. He knows your secret sin. It is laid out before him and nothing is hidden. Moses goes, God, my sin's before you. Even my secret sin, the things that no one else knows about, God, it is, it is laid bare before you, yet you are my refuge. You are my dwelling place. Moses gets it, and he understands that it is not by works that we come into God as our dwelling place, but it is by grace and it is by mercy. And ultimately, even though Moses couldn't articulate it to this extent, it is through the blood of Christ that we are welcome to have our, dwell, our dwelling place be in God, to be in Christ. Verse 9, for all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to end like a sigh. That is a pretty accurate picture there. Moses says we get to the end and we're tired. And it's just, it's just a sigh. Moses says, man, we're, we're dying. Verse 10, the years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? And I was talking to somebody, it's been a couple weeks ago, almost. we were talking about marriage. And, uh, you know, I said, we, we live in a world that, that, that thinks that marriage is supposed to be easy, right? Uh, even as Christians, we kind of have this idea that, you know, if I love my wife like Christ loved the church, man, she's just going to respond in love, and, and, and she's going to just submit with so much joy, and it's just going to be such a great, perfect thing. And it's not, right? It's not. It's hard. It's a struggle. It's a fight. But we have this idea that no, we can, we can figure this out. We can make this work so that it's easy. And Moses goes, guys, it's not easy. We live in a world that is under a curse. We live in a world that is hostile to us. We live in a world that's trying to kill us. And God made it that way. We've got COVID. We've got, we've got floods. We've got hurricanes. We've got car crashes. We've got cancer. We've got the flu. Go to work, anybody? Anybody go to work this week and go, well, that was a really unproductive, frustrating work at week? Remember the curse? Genesis 3, by the sweat of your brow shall you eat. The land shall no longer bring forth its fruit, but instead it will bring forth thorns and thistles. God cursed it. When you go to work this next week and things go horribly wrong, don't be shocked by that. Go, of course it went horribly wrong. It's cursed, and it's meant to be cursed because it is meant to be a reminder to me that we live in a world that is cursed because of sin, because of my sin, and it is only through the blood of Jesus Christ that I can have a home, that I can have a refuge, that I can have a place to which I can continually return. And if we forget it, if, if we forget that, We'll spend the rest of our life working. We'll spend the rest of our life trying to, trying to fix things, trying to make it easier, hoping that with the next job, things will be better. With the next house, things will be better. When the kids get grown and they get out of the house, it'll be better. All right? And, and it's good to have hope. It's good to look forward in our lives and say, yes, I see hope in the distance. We need that hope. But ultimately, guys, our hope should not rest in the fact that Things are going to get better next year, but should rest in the fact that God is our dwelling place. Remembering back to Moses and the situation that he was in, tremendous stress and exhaustion that he was under, and he says, God, you are my dwelling place. Verse 12, Moses is going to tell us what we should get, because I realize verse 3 through 11 is heavy, and it's, it's meant to be heavy. It's good for us to feel that because we, we live our lives as Americans 
trying to put a little mirror up, you know, so we can make things look good. We've got, we've got Botox and plastic surgery, and we've got all these workouts and exercises and diets and all these things that we tell ourselves is going to, it's, you know, oh, I'm going to live forever. I'm going to be healthy forever. And in reality, no, we're all going to die, right? There's an uplifting, uplifting little Twitter quote for you this morning. We're all going to die. Love my church, you know? <laughs> Don't worry, Moses is about to take a turn here. Verse 12, what do we do with that weight? Moses says, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Now, this is not just Moses going, hey, time is short, make the best of it. Use your time wisely. That's not what he's doing here. This is, this is the capstone of everything he has said previously, right? Moses is saying, God, teach us to number our days. God, teach us to know how short our life is how it is like a, a vapor. It is like a mere breath. Elsewhere in Scripture and Psalms it says, our life is like a mere breath. Just, that's it. Moses, God, help us to know that. Help us to know our frailty. Help us to know the shortness of this life. And as, the, as uh, Solomon would say in Ecclesiastes, help us to know the vanity of this life. so that we may get a heart of wisdom. Because ultimately, if we understand that part, the other part we also need to understand, per verses 1 and 2, is that God is eternal. Our lives are just a, a vapor, a wisp. They're here, they're gone. But God is eternal, and He is our dwelling place. And in Him, we have a dwelling place eternally that is not this home, that will not fade, that will not betray us, that will never fail because our God is, is unchanging. I'm on to verse 13. All right. This is the, I, I love it when this happens in Scripture. When things get heavy, and then there's like, there's like an outburst at the end of it, right? And so Moses has a little outburst here at the end of it. You get the same thing in Romans 7, when Paul's like, oh, the things that I want to do, I don't do. And the things that I want to do are the things I don't want to do. I do those things. And then he goes, oh, who will rescue me from this body of death, right? And he's just like, he's exasperated. Then he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And he remembers, I have a Savior. I have forgiveness. I have redemption. Moses does the same thing here. And he says, return, O Lord, how long have pity on your servants? He goes, God, we are withering away. We are wasting away like the grass in the summer heat. God, have pity on us. How long? And then he says this in verse 14. He says, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Now, first part of this, he says, satisfy us in the morning. And I love this. Because the way that we usually operate is we wait until evening and we go to bed and, or maybe we're sitting in the chair at night and we evaluate our day and go, that was a horrible day. Or that was a great day. Right? We evaluate our day and we say, was it a good day? Was it a bad day? And Moses says, God, would you satisfy me in the morning? He's saying, God, would you put before me your eternality? Would you put before me that you are my dwelling place, that this world is not my home, that I would remember my, I would know the number of my days. I would remember how frail that I am and how my hope and my trust is in you. And that I can be satisfied with you in the morning with your steadfast love. And what he's saying, he's saying, God, Satisfy me in the morning with your steadfast love so that no matter what happens the rest of the day, it was a good day. Moses is saying, it's not, we, don't, we don't just respond to the day and say, God, that was a horrible day. Help me deal with it. He says, no, at the beginning of the day, remember, remember these truths and go, no matter what happens today, he's my dwelling place. And he is eternal, and he is loving, and it is through his grace and mercy that I can come home to him, that he is my home. He is the place to which I continually return to the point where we go, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how the rest of my day goes. I'm satisfied. I'm satisfied with his steadfast love. But here's the thing. Like, when he says, 
satisfy me in the morning with your steadfast love, my brain immediately goes, his mercies are new every morning. So you go, oh, he's going to do that here. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't say, satisfy me in the morning with your steadfast love all the day long. What does he say? Somebody say it. Somebody say it. (laughs) That worked out well. That we may rejoice and be glad all our days. God, if you satisfy me in the morning with your steadfast love, I'll be glad all my days. Not just one day, but I'll be glad all my days. God, because you are eternal, because you are as unchanging as the mountains. You set the mountains in place. Therefore, God, if you bring these truths to mind and you satisfy me in the morning with your steadfast love, all my days I will be glad. And I will rejoice. You can, you can imagine Moses' days. And my wife, Erin, we've got five kids. And it's summer, so they're all home every day, all day. And uh, she told me the other day, she said, I'm so tired of cooking. She's like, I feel like my life is preparing food. That's all I do. And, and she's just, she's tired. She's tired of it. And she's, she's wrestling and she's struggling against the curse. Her job is cursed. Raising children is hard because it, we're raising children under the curse. I, I, I fix people's houses for a living. We go in and we take out the, the dysfunction and the chaos and the rot and the broken and the ugly, and we put back the new and the orderly and the, and the, and the beautiful. That's what we do. I love, I love that little part of, of redemption that, that is inherent with my job where we take what is broken and old and make it new and make it right again. But you know what? As soon as we walk out the door, it starts breaking. It starts deteriorating. Some new countertops get scratched. Somebody drops something on the floor. The, the paint gets dinged, or some kid goes over and draws Mickey Mouse on it with a crown, right? Like, it, it, it never ends. We live under the curse. Moses says, God, we need relief. God, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy me in the morning with your steadfast love. Verse 15. It says, Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen evil. I want to read another large block of text. So go ahead and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 8. And I want us to kind of, it's a, it's a long section, okay? Um, but I want us to read it together. And I don't want anybody to get lost and drift off. So let's, let's read it together. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2 through 10. And again, remember, Moses is the guy who wrote Deuteronomy. So there's so much continuity here between what Moses is writing in Psalms and what he has seen God do and known God to be everywhere else in the Old Testament. Or not in the Old Testament, but everywhere else in the first five books of the Old Testament. If you're there, say word. All right. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 2 through 10. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let, your, let you hunger. He humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. That sound familiar? Jesus quoted it, being tempted in the desert. Verse 4. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciples his son, the Lord your God disciples you. Sorry, as a man disciplines his son, sorry. As a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you, so that you shall keep his commandments for the Lord your God by walking in his, of the Lord your God, by walking in his ways and by fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs flowing out of valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack 
nothing. A land whose stones are iron, and out of the hills you can dig copper, and you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. What's Moses doing here? He's saying, guys, you remember all that suffering that we went through? Do you remember the wilderness? Remember the hunger, the thirst? Do you remember all the times that God provided for us? He provided food to eat. He provided manna. He provided quail from heaven. He provided water for us to drink. Your clothes didn't wear out for 40 years. Like, that would be pretty cool, right? I I can wear the same pair of uh, tennis shoes for 40 years. I would be okay with that. And they didn't wear out. That's important. I I wouldn't wear a pair of tennis shoes for 40 years and have them wore out just, just for clarity's sake. Moses is saying, guys, all the hardships and the wrath that we have endured were for a purpose. And that purpose was to bring us into the promised land. And in reality, though, Canaan was never meant to be the real promised land. It was meant to be a picture of a promised land. It was meant to be a picture of us being with God for all eternity, satisfied in Him, where we have everything that we need in Him, Moses knew that the hope lies at the end of the journey. Because our hope lies at the end of the journey. It doesn't lie. It, it does not lie in a new house, or in a new car, or in a better job, or living someplace that has more stuff to do, or better behaved children, or a better marriage. Our hope does not lie in any of those things. Our hope lies in the end, in God, in our dwelling place. Going on in verse 16, Moses says, God, let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Moses says, God, show us your work. So what does he mean when he says, when he says, God, let your work be shown to your servants? In Psalms 95, 9, he says, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to proof, though they had seen my work. What's he saying? He's saying, when I brought them out of Egypt, when I brought the plagues upon the Egyptians, when I sheltered them, when I parted the Red Sea, when I fed them in the desert, when I gave them water to drink in the desert, when I, when I had, had their clothes and their shoes not wear out, when I protected them from uh, all these other kings and nations who wanted to come in and wipe them out. He says, those are, those are, the, those are God's work. Psalms 92.4 says, For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the work of your hands I sing for joy. And Psalm 77.12 says, I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. God is asking, or sorry, Moses is asking God to reveal his work to his people. Put it very plainly, saying, God, we want to see you move. We want to see you work in our lives. Give us eyes to see you working. So the question I put to you this morning is, do you meditate on God's work in your life? Because what, what I think happens many times is we don't. We don't meditate on God's work in our lives. We, we meditate on the frustrations. And what we meditate on are the effects of the curse and wishing they weren't there. And we, Satan blinds us from seeing that the answer to the curse we have death has no power that we have a savior that we have a dwelling place that we have a home we have a fortress to which we can continually return and someday we will we will return to perfectly because that that verse that we read at the beginning i think it was psalms uh let's see here uh, psalm 71 3 he says to which i may continually come there there is a there's an intentionality to that, right? To continually coming. I, I can't just come to God and say, God, you are my dwelling place, and then go, all right, I'm here now. I'll just, I'm, I'm here. I don't ever have to do this again, right? No. The psalmist says, I continually come to you, God. My rock, my refuge, my fortress, my dwelling place, I come to you continually. And for you and for I, you and for me, for me and you, you and I, I'll get it right in a minute, for us, there we go. I'm from Kentucky, and then I spent some time in Alabama. Y'all, give me grace. 
for us, we have to continually come to God. We have to continue, not just to know he's our dwelling place, but treat him like he's our dwelling place. If I don't treat God as if he's my dwelling place, when it comes to the exhaustion or I'm struggling, I'm, I'm wilting under the weight of, in the, the heat of sin, and I'm drying out and I'm exhausted, if I do not continually come to him, I can know that I can come to him. I can know that he's enough for me. But if in that moment when I go, I'm done, like I'm just at the end of myself, it's been a horrible week, I'm exhausted, <sighs> YouTube, take me away, right? I, I'm going biking. All right. I'm going for a drive. Whatever we, whatever we put in that place and say, this is where I go when I'm at my end. What I say when I, when I come home and I'm exhausted and I'm frustrated and all I want to do is go to YouTube, what I'm saying is, YouTube, you are my dwelling place. You are my home to which I continually return. You are my fortress. But it is a fortress and it is a, it is a home that is a breath. It is a vapor it is a lie. God is only my refuge and my dwelling place. If I know he's my refuge and my dwelling place, and when I'm at the end of myself, I say, God, I'm coming. I'm coming to you. I need you. And, and it is a choice that we make through the power of the Holy Spirit to say, God, I'm coming to you. You are the only one who can satisfy me, who can uphold me right now, who can be my refuge, who can be my strength. God, satisfy me with your loving kindness. Do we meditate on God's goodness towards us? Do we not just know that he is our dwelling place, but do we treat him as our dwelling place? Moses is basically asserting, he's, he's basically saying that one of the ways that God produces joy and gladness in our life is by showing us his work. It's by us seeing his work and by us meditating on his work and his loving kindness that we see in there and going, God, I'm satisfied. You are good. You are my refuge. You are enough for me. In the last verse, verse 17, it says, Let the favor of the Lord be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. It says, Let the favor, and uh, there's a little footnote probably at the bottom that, that might offer a, an alternate word for that that shows up in some manuscripts. Um, some, of the, some of the manuscripts says, Let the beauty of the Lord let the favor of the Lord, let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us. Some other translators have translated it, let the sweetness of the Lord our God be upon us. And this is tied directly back to God, satisfy us with your loving kindness. Show us the work of your hands in our lives. Let us see you work. And then he says, God, let your sweetness, let your beauty, let your favor be upon us, God. And this is, this is important for us as believers to understand that it is okay and it is right for us to come to God and say, God, I want to see you work. God, I, I want to experience your sweetness. I want to see your beauty. God would satisfy me with your love every day. But I think there's a lot of times that, that we don't and we say, I can't ask him for that. He's not going to give me that. I've been bad this week. This has not been a good week. I have not been a faithful servant. I could ask him to show me his favor and his beauty, but he's not going to do it. I've been a jerk. And we fall into that lie that says our ability to come before God and ask him lies in our own work and our own strength, when in reality we get to come to him as our dwelling place because we're covered by the blood of Christ. Period. On my best week, on my worst week, he's still my dwelling place. And it is still okay and right for me to come to him and say, God, God, would you, would you let your beauty and your sweetness and your favor be upon me? I want to see you work. We live in a world, as, as we said before, that is it's hostile. It's a world that's trying to kill us. And it is also a world that, as much as it's trying to kill us, is also fleeting. 
Um, I'm trying to remember where it was. I think I had a verse here somewhere. <laughs> Bear with me. Yes, here we go. Psalms 39.5 says, Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Listen to this. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. We live in a world that is just, all of the generations of mankind are as a mere breath. That's it. It's gone. It's fleeting. It's meant to be fleeting. When, when our home fails to be a home, it's meant to not be a home. The other night, uh, it was about 11 o'clock, I'd been working on the sermon. I was like, okay, I gotta get some sleep. I gotta go to bed. And I got up to go back there, and I was like, it feels hot in here. So I look at the thermostat, and it's set on, uh, I think it was set on 68 or something like that, and it was like 70 degrees in the house. And I went, uh-oh, that's not good. So I went and asked Aaron, I was like, hey, did you just now turn the air up? She's like, no, I haven't touched it. Crap. So then, okay, the AC's not working. So 11 o'clock at night, 11.30, I'm up on the roof, I'm checking the drain, I got water coming out, I go up in the attic, the, drain, the, the pan underneath is just full of water. My drain line was stopped up. So I'm, I'm in the attic just sweating, you know, breathing insulation, cleaning the plug out. My house is under a curse, y'all. <laughs> we, we just worked for a lady on her house, and she kept telling, she goes, this house is cursed, this house is cursed. And I didn't think of it that way, but what I should have said is, you're right, it is. It's cursed. My house is trying to kill me. My cars are cursed. My grass is cursed. My lawnmower is cursed. It's all cursed. You're welcome. <laughs> it's meant to be cursed. Life is meant to be a struggle. It is meant to be hard. It is meant to make us long for home. It is meant to make us go, God, I need to be satisfied with your loving kindness and I want to be satisfied with your loving kindness forevermore. It's meant to make us yearn for our heavenly home with our heavenly Father when we say, God, you are my refuge. You are my dwelling place to whom I continually return. And I want us to see one more thing about this dwelling place. Let's jump back to verse 1 real quick. Moses says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. You know what Moses doesn't say is, Lord, you have welcomed us into your dwelling place for all generations. Lord, you have given us access into your dwelling place. We get to hang out in your dwelling place with you. What does he say? He says, no, God, you are the dwelling place. I want us to, to go to Ephesians. Let's go to Ephesians real quick. Going to Ephesians chapter 1. Sorry, Ephesians chapter 2. Nope, wrong verse. Sorry. I do have Ephesians chapter 2, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to loosely quote Ephesians chapter 1. So in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul refers to all of the things that we are in Christ, right? In Christ, you have been adopted as sons. In Christ, you have been, uh, you have been forgiven. In Christ, you've been blessed with every spiritual blessings. And, and Paul and Moses are saying the same thing, Right? The dwelling place is not with Christ, it's in Christ. And Paul in the New Testament is going, guys, if you are in Christ, if you are in the dwelling place, you have been given this. He is our dwelling place. And I, when I was a kid, we used to go to, we went, I'd say, we didn't go to a lot. We went to some revivals. Or, you know, they set up the tent, you know, and you got the fire and brimstone preacher that, that comes and preaches. And, and uh, he'd always talk about heaven, you know, it was the place where you go and getting a red sports car and, and, and play, play a good game of golf or go fishing. Or, um, personally, I hope I can fly. I want to fly. This is my confessions, my pulpit confessions here. When I get to heaven, I want to be able to fly. But the thing about heaven, it isn't, it's not that we get to go there and be with God. He is our dwelling place. I don't get to go there and enjoy some good things and hang out with God. I get to go see him face to face and be in him. Because here on this earth, we have before us 
the exhausting task of continually returning, continually going back to him and saying, God, I need you to be my refuge. I need you to be my dwelling place. Be, be to me a dwelling place. Be to me a home. In eternity, there will be no continually returning. It will just be, we're there. We're in him for all eternity. The exhaustion of having to go, I got to do this over and over and over again is gone. And it is just for all eternity, I'm in my dwelling place with him and I am satisfied in his loving kindness and he has made me glad, period. And I can't wait for that day. The last part of verse 17 says, establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Again, he's saying things in a way that's not as you would expect, right? He doesn't say, God established the work of our hands. He says, establish the work of our hands upon us. Going to Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Again, Paul and Moses are saying the exact same thing. Moses is saying, God, would you establish the work of our hands upon us? God, the, the things that you would have us to do, the things that will last for all of eternity, the things that we do according to your will, God, would you establish them upon us? The, the reality is that any good thing that you and I do is not us, right? If there's anything nice that comes out of Nate Brady at all, if there's any kind of generosity or humility or anything good that comes out of me, it is because Christ is doing it in me and through me, not because I'm doing it. Moses says, God, would you establish the work of our hands upon us? He's going, God, would you give us the things that you want us to do? Yes, establish the work of our hands. And, and the thing is this, without the filter of everything that has come before, we cannot pray this prayer. Because if I do not understand the eternality of God and that he alone is my dwelling place and my home and my refuge, if I do not understand that I am living under a curse and that my life is a mere breath, if I'm not satisfied with his loving kindness in the morning, if all of those things are not in place, I will pray this prayer, but it will be God established the work of my hands so that I can get a better job, so that I can make more money, so that my kids will be more, more uh, well-behaved, right? So that I can have a boat, so that I can have a camper. So fill in the blank with anything you want, so that I can have more popularity, so that I can have friends, so that I can be beautiful, so that I can be handsome. Whatever you want to fill that with, we all have the things that we say, this. And if we do not understand that only God is our dwelling place and we do not understand our sin and we do not understand our frailty and the shortness of our life and that he alone can satisfy for all eternity, we'll pray this prayer going, God, establish the work of my hands so that I can have something besides you. And that's not what Moses is saying. He's saying, God, because I know who you are, because I know who I am, because I know that you alone can satisfy and be my refuge and my fortress and my help, God, give me the work to do that you want me to do so that it will be established. And this word established that's used here, it's used twice. Establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands is the same word used for a dynasty that is established on a firm foundation and will not be shaken. It's the same word for having a building that is established upon a firm foundation that cannot be moved and it cannot be shaken. And Moses is saying, God, would you give us your work to do so that it will be established for all eternity? God, I want to do the work that you want me to do, not as something that's fleeting and will pass away and be gone forever, but something that will last for all of eternity. A couple years ago, they sold, uh, they sold my, my papa's farm. Worked for years on that farm. Carved it out of nothing. Worked, built barns, built houses, fences. He worked his entire life on that farm, building a farm, a good farm. He had a reputation all over Marion County. Good reputation. And you know what? He died. My grandma died. They sold the farm. It's gone. 
the work of his hands, gone. And if we live for that, if we live going, God, would you establish the work of my hands in growing my business, or establish the work of my hands in getting better stuff, or better house, it's all fleeting, and it passes like a vapor, like a dream. Was it there? Was it not there? Moses says, God, would you give me your work to do so that it will be established for all eternity? In just a moment, we're going we're to pray, and the worship team's going to come. We're going to have a, a time of invitation. Maybe you're here this morning, and you, you realize that, that God has not been your dwelling place. You know he's your dwelling place, but you haven't been dwelling there. I pray that God would, would show us, teach us to number our days, show us the emptiness of pursuing the things of this world. Maybe you're here this morning and you say, I don't know Christ. I've never placed my faith in him for salvation. I've been trying to do it on my own. I've been trying to earn it, be good enough, do enough good work, serve enough so that he'll accept me, so that he'll bless me. But I, I'm not welcome in him. I'm not welcome in my dwelling place. It's not even my dwelling place because I, I'm not covered by the blood of Christ. And if that's you this morning, and I pray that this morning you would, you would take that step to say, God, I want to trust you. I want you to be my dwelling place. I want you to satisfy me with your loving kindness forevermore. The altar will be open. You can come down here and, and pray. Come down here and talk to the elders. There'll be a couple of us down here. I pray that this week we would be reminded as we go through our week that he alone is our dwelling place. And that he would satisfy us in the morning so that in the morning we go, no matter how today goes, I'm satisfied. No matter if it's the worst day ever, I'm satisfied. Because he is my refuge, he is my fortress. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for thank you for who you are, that you are eternal, God, that you are from everlasting to everlasting. God, I thank you for the curse that you have placed upon this world. I thank you that our lives are hard. I thank you that, that our jobs are a struggle, that raising our children is a struggle, that, that we fight constantly against this world that we live in, against nature, against the elements, against man. God, I thank you that it's so hard. God, I pray that you would guard us from ignoring the fact that it's hard to point us to you. It's, it's hard so that we will look to you and see our need for you, to see our need for a home and a refuge. God, I pray that you would continually draw us to yourself. God, that we would be a people who dwell in you. God, that you would show us, you would show us the frailty of our lives. You would show us to teach us to number our days so that we could, we could have a heart of wisdom, gain a heart of wisdom. God, I pray that you would satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness, that you would bring to mind all your goodness towards us and your grace and your mercy and your love. pray that we would find rest in you. God, I pray that you would give us work. Eternal work. God, that as, as you are, Christ, as you are about your Father's business, God, that we would be a people that dwell in you and are a people about our Father's business. God, that you would establish that work. thank you that even though we are sinners and even though we are unworthy to be able to come into you as our dwelling place to be satisfied with your loving kindness forevermore God that you have provided a way through Jesus Christ God that we can repent and come to you and lean on you and have you be enough for us God will we be overwhelmed by the grace and mercy of 
what you have done for us. In your name we pray.